Take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy. We are going to be looking at 1 Timothy for the next several weeks. That brings the question uh, up of what we're going to be doing now on Sunday mornings together. Uh, There is a collection of three letters in the New Testament, and they are often uh, called the pastoral letters. Uh, You might hear them referred to sometimes as the pastoral epistles, but you can just substitute the word letters for epistles and save yourself any confusion that might exist. They are pastoral letters. The books are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and they are each letters from Paul to fellow pastors, to pastors whom he had commissioned, whom he had sent out to a work. And so my goal, and this is subject to change, is to walk through these. And let me talk for a minute uh, briefly about pace. My goal while we go through these letters is to go through them rather quickly in terms of how many weeks it takes us to move through the letters. Because I think for these particular letters, if you get Uh, so uh, slow and methodical uh, with each verse, you can lose the context of the, the, the letter itself. In other words, you can spend time drilling down into each verse so specifically, and there's value in doing that, that you miss the value of treating it like a letter, of understanding the chapters and the paragraphs and the context of the greater message. So, Now, I have uh, quite a bit of experience teaching like this. Uh, I've said before, on Wednesday nights, we've been through the the whole New Testament at this point in time. Those of you who've joined us on Wednesday nights, uh, it will probably feel similar to that. Uh, But I think it would be something that would be uh, good and helpful for our broader congregation. Um, And now let me say another thing about the pastoral letters. It's important to understand that... um, my hands are not in the plane they should be in, right, from the last week. It's important to understand that there are no secret instruction books for, for pastors. Not really. There, there aren't any. Um, I, when I started the call that, um, that my gifts, my spiritual gifts would be best served in the church in the role of of teaching and perhaps pastoring, um, I was uh, probably operating under some wrong assumptions that in order to do that, I really needed to go uh, to some sort of place of higher education and receive instruction and training and so on and so forth. And and I don't have any uh, bad words to say publicly about my higher education or anyone else's in, in that uh, context. I do have you know, a Bible degree. Uh, but what I found when I went to, uh, to school is the elements that pertain to pastoral instruction were no different than what I had grown up being taught in the local church. Now, I had the blessing of being taught in a local church for years and years and years, the Bible faithfully, and the fullness of the Bible faithfully. In other words, I I did not go to the kind of church where you might go for a year or two and never cover, you know, more than 
a few random passages selected from different places in the Bible. Uh, I uh, grew up in this church, and on Sunday mornings, the New Testament was taught thoroughly, uh, verse by verse, with authority. It wasn't wishy-washy. It wasn't watered down. It wasn't skipping over difficult subjects. It was taught to the best of the teacher's ability, uh, with authority for instruction, and it was understood, as all of you who were here well, well know, that this is not just some sacred text. This is the instruction for life and godliness for Christians. Uh, but I didn't just go to church on Sunday mornings. Uh, you know, I, I, I went to uh, the training for children, and I went to the training for teenagers, and I returned on Sunday evenings, and I returned on Wednesdays. And at each of these services, different parts of the Bible were being taught exhaustively to me. So what I found is that when I went away to, went away, when I, when I took Bible training, you know, it was, it was online for me, the material of the, of the class was not foreign to me. And, and that, that brings me back to my point. There are no secret books about how to serve in Christian ministry. And you should really take that to heart. There is no secret master plan that someone has written up that will be better for us to consume and meditate on for church ministry than, than this book. Than this book. Now, I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, I really do believe that there are people called to ministry in this congregation and I think that for some of them, perhaps the hesitation was similar to the hesitation that I experienced in that, well, I have to, uh, you know, I have to go away for training or I have, to, I have to go away to seminary and I have to devote X amount of years to my life in study of this or that. Um, that's not true. Uh, Timothy here has been set over a church in Ephesus to pastor Timothy did not have any Bible degrees. Uh, he did not have any seminary training. His training was what was taught to him of the Holy Scriptures by his relatives growing up in the Bible, his, his mother, his grandmother, and Paul, his pastor, who won him to Christ and who taught him the Scriptures and what they say about Jesus. Now, that, that was Timothy's training as well as the letters that we have for us. So, there, there should not exist in our minds the obstacle to Christian ministry like what might rightly exist when it comes to becoming, a, you know, a, a computer software programmer. You know, I am, I am not equipped for that. That is not, that, that is not information that I have. But the Bible itself is fully capable of training up servants and ministers for the glory of Jesus Christ. First is to give you confidence... I say that there is no secret instruction book. If, if the first is to give you confidence that the scripture truly is sufficient. The second reason why I bring this to your attention is from time to time. In fact, I think we're, we're pretty inundated with them right now. There are all kinds of books and programs published by all sorts of people. Some of them well-meaning, some of them not. Uh, that are meant to instruct pastors and teachers and churches on the things that they can do that the Bible does not teach them to do 
to really have a great and successful ministry. There are all kinds of videos and programs, and some people have a bit of a cottage industry picking apart pastors and churches and, oh, well, this church doesn't do that, and this, this ministry doesn't do that, and where is the X ministry in your church, and you're not very good at this, and as if uh, somehow behind the scenes there is some secret manual that if we will just put this to practice, we will experience the secret sauce of success in ministry, and therefore, if we ignore this secret manual and this approach and this, this, this hidden gem of wisdom and insight from this person who's put it together, we're really doing not only ourselves a disservice, but the people who we minister to a disservice and, and the name of Jesus itself a disservice. Because, of course, if there is some secret insight to explosive church growth and ministry and incredible ministry success, that will see thousands of people or hundreds of people be saved. If there is some secret element that we're neglecting, then we would be culpable for the judgment of hell and how many people's lives for not practicing it. I was at a pastor's conference. Uh, actually, it wasn't a pastor's conference. It's a Together for the Gospel conference some years ago. Probably, I think probably eight years ago. And I got to hear John MacArthur uh, preach in, in person. Uh, only, only experienced that twice. And uh, not that there's anything magical about it, but it was memorable for that reason. Uh, memorable because we got there early and I, boy, I went right to the front. I'm going to sit right up front. There's a big, big uh, conference, uh, sit, I think about 8,000 at the time. And uh, I was not going to sit in the bleachers in the back. Now, we got there late because of Isaac Driver and Nathan Klein. So I had to sit in the back for, for John Piper's sermon the night before. And, and I paid attention, but man, wouldn't you believe it? I look over at Nate Klein and he is asleep during John Piper's sermon. What did we drive here for, man? What are you doing? He is just, he's dying over the end of a long day. But boy, we got right to the front for John MacArthur's sermon. And he preached a message, and, and I know Steve brings this up from, from time to time, but it's called A Theology of Sleep. Now, you didn't know there was a theology for sleep, did you? You thought you had that figured out, right? But it wasn't about sleeping uh, at night. It, it was about the idea that a Christian minister can be faithful to minister as God has called him to minister, practicing the plain instruction from God's word with sincerity of his heart to the best of his ability, and the results depend upon the Lord. They do not depend upon a program. They do not depend upon a presentation. The Spirit of God has to work in the hearts and lives of people. And, and, and his point was, I can sleep at night. Um, because if people's salvation depended on some secret sauce of presentation or some secret element of Christian ministry or some hidden training, that he, some book that he hadn't read, if it depended upon that and he had somehow neglected it, then he would be responsible for untold thousands of people who never repented and trusted Jesus for salvation, that would be on his shoulders. How could you sleep at night? How could I go to sleep on a Saturday night if I believe that the next morning what I did depended on whether or not you spent eternity in heaven or hell? I couldn't sleep at night. But that's not the ministry that God calls people to. He calls us with sincerity of heart, with integrity, and uh, certainly an element of knowledge of his word to sacrificially lay ourselves down and to minister, to proclaim the truth, and to trust Him with the results. So I want to look through these pastoral letters with you. And, and again, I, we'll move at a, at a quicker pace than when we went through the Gospel of Matthew or the letter to 
uh, the Ephesians or the Colossians, because I want you to know what these things say. Um, let's begin in verse 1, also 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's see the opening of a pastoral letter here. Paul says, uh, identifying himself, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So, um, standard introduction, we won't spend a lot of time with it. Uh, you know, the, the thing that stands out to me is in verse 2 where it says, To Timothy, I know who Paul is. Paul is an apostle. He has been commissioned to take the message of salvation to the Gentile people. He's hard at work. He's writing a letter. He's not with Timothy in person. He's writing a letter to Timothy. Timothy is a convert. Uh, he is a, he is a, a half Greek, half Jewish guy. Uh, he's he's sacrificed to to serve. He is uh, he's come alongside Paul, and now he's been commissioned by Paul, as we'll see, to work. And Paul writes him this note, and he calls him in verse 2 to Timothy, a true son in the faith. And, you know, I've, I've jotted down as I go through this rather quickly some observations for us. And here's the first one. It comes from, from this verse 2. Uh, for those with true faith, true relationships exist. You were not meant to be a Christian in isolation of other believers. You just weren't. Uh, Timothy's relationship with Paul is not biological. He was not Paul's biological son. He was not just a buddy. He was a true son in the faith in the sense that Paul had raised him up in the faith. He had discipled him. He had won him to the Lord. He had spent time training and working with him. He was, to Paul's thinking, a true son, a real relationship. And we need meaningful relationships. But those relationships cannot be fraudulent relationships based on other things. True Christian relationships come down to the agreement, the accord that we share in our one true faith. Romans chapter 8 verses 14 and 15 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, children of God. Okay, the Greek sons can be applied to both masculine and feminine. It's all encompasses there. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. In other words, the relationships that we claim to have with each other when we call ourselves brother and sister in the Lord Jesus Christ, that comes down to whether or not we are led by the Spirit of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We receive the Holy Spirit who is a spirit of adoption. What is adoption? a spirit of bringing people who were not a part of the family into a family, by which we now call our Father, our Patriarch, Abba, Father, that being God. So our relationships, our true relationships, if they exist to each other, do not come down to a common interest that we share with one another or common agendas that we share with one another or localities or race or anything like that. Our relationships come down to the fact that we are led by the Spirit of God and being led by the Spirit of God, we have been adopted into God's family so that when Andy calls upon his God as Father, and I call upon my God as Father, we're not simply calling upon God our Father, but we're doing so acknowledging that we are brothers. We are brothers, and of the same family, of the same accord, and of the same spirit of adoption. 
which means we strive for unity in that spirit, not unity in all sorts of other things. People who try to manufacture unity in ways that are not approved or authorized by the scriptures are manufacturing a false unity that won't last and that doesn't lead to true relationships. In other words, if we try to manufacture a unity around compromise of sin so no one gets offended, that is not a unity of the Spirit of God by which we call upon our holy God who has instructed us in these things, Abba, Father. That kind of unity will not lead to true relationships, Abba. Timothy, Timothy was a true son in the faith. That's what it says, a true son in the faith. And that should give you an idea of what's to come if we're going to have unity. And you have to have unity in what we believe. Unity in the faith. And you can strive for unity in all sorts of other things. Unity in how many people are being baptized. Unity in how many people are showing up. Unity in the kind of music that we like. Unity in, in our enjoyment of all sorts of activities. And lots of people are striving for that. True relationships come down to this. To Timothy, the true son in the faith. Okay, verse 3. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Think about that for a second. What does that indicate? If, if Paul had urged Timothy when he was in Macedonia to remain in Ephesus, and now he is telling him again to remain in Ephesus, what does that indicate about Paul's impression of Timothy's experience in Ephesus? Perhaps it was not great all the time. Perhaps Timothy did not want to remain in Ephesus. Perhaps Timothy was ready to move on. Perhaps he was ready to be united with Paul. Timothy has been left in charge as a pastor and overseer in Ephesus, and he required the urging to be there in the first place, and he is requiring, at least by Paul's thinking, the instruction to remain there now. Pastoral ministry is not easy. It's not easy. And people don't want to stay in one place and be pastors for that reason. And Timothy does not want to stay in Ephesus. We're going to get a, a, a clear picture as to why it's uncomfortable. He says, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some. You might as well just write in the word command. A charge is a command. It's an instruction. You know, you, you are to stay in Ephesus, Timothy, so that you can give some people a command. Now, some of you probably have commanded people before, have been in charge of people before, and have issued instructions before. Usually, if you are issuing instructions to people, you have some kind of leverage over them, right? Yeah. Why do you listen to the boss at work? Because he's always right? Because you're just filled with affection for him? No. You listen to the boss at work because he holds some sort of leverage over you. Now, he may be right more often than not, and you may care about him. But the instruction comes with the, the implicit idea 
that there is a paycheck and a job on the line, you have to follow a chain of command. Same things with coaches, same things with parents, same things in all facets of life, except you get to pastoral ministry, and what leverage does Timothy have to charge these people with anything? He can rebuke them, and if they are in sin and disobedient, he can excommunicate them. He can put them out of the church. By the way, Timothy is there because on Paul's last visit, Paul had put two people out of the church. And we're going to see that in this letter. And these two people were not just sitting in the back row with their mouth shut. These two people were probably pastors. That is the tone of the letter. Teaching and instructing and leading people in a way they should not have. And if you want to think about an uncomfortable situation, Paul excommunicates two pastors and then he leaves Timothy to be in charge to make sure nobody else does what those guys were doing. That is not a comfortable position to be in. Timothy was not voted to the task by the congregation. (laughs) Yeah, he was not... There's no indication that the people are the ones who wanted to put those two pastors out of there. You understand? Paul deals with the two people as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Timothy is appointed. This is a pattern that you're going to see, by the way. We get to Titus, and I hope to get there with you all. There may only be 10 people left at that point. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But we get to Titus, and we read that Paul has sent Titus to an area of the world that was not particularly easy. He sent Titus there to appoint pastors. This is an uncomfortable spot. What leverage does Timothy have to call upon their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to obey? So charge some. What's the charge concerning? That they teach no other doctrine. Now, you want to make people in a church upset. You listen to them teach a class or a Bible study and then tell them don't do that anymore. Don't teach that anymore. They will get mad, right? Because people who are invested into learning God's Word and and thinking through these things and then teaching it to other people don't like to be told, hey, stop teaching that. Even if you do it, kindly and gently, even if you do it as politely as you can, even if you sit down and reason through the scriptures why what they have taught is an error, and that's the reason why you would say stop teaching it and why it's, it, it, it shouldn't be taught this way, and they still will not respond kindly. That is Timothy's charge here, to charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith, from which some have strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Now, the tone of 1 Timothy gives us the background that this is probably what was happening. Uh, There were teachers and pastors in the church who began teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and what accords with sound doctrine. And then it seems as if there was a shift towards the Mosaic Law and special teachings on the Mosaic Law, like the rabbis and the Pharisees of the Jewish faith and tradition. 
And, and the thing about the rabbis and the Pharisees of the Jewish faith tradition is they became sort of the gatekeepers to eternal life in the Jewish communities where they were at. You see, we have in the Old Testament the law of God. Instructions for what's right and wrong. And the law of God was meant to show people their sin so that coming face to face with their sin, they would be driven to God in repentance and that's why we have the sacrificial system and the priest in the Old Testament and the temple and the worship of God there that there would be an acknowledgement of sin and an understanding. I need a forgiveness. I need a righteousness. I need an atonement that is outside myself outside what I am able to perform. And if you read the law of God in the Old Testament, that's what you end up with. Sin offerings and guilt offerings. Yes, instruction about right and wrong, but at least as much time is spent on how we go about seeking the forgiveness and reconciliation of God. All of those offerings and sacrifices pointing one day towards the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Well, what had happened over the centuries is rabbis and Pharisees in Judaism had changed the focus of the law into rather than being a vessel of communicating to people their need for a righteousness outside themselves, for an atonement that they could not do for themselves, the law had become in the minds of Pharisees and, and rabbis a method of making people righteous if they simply understood all of the intricate commands. In other words, instead of becoming a vehicle that showed people their sinfulness, it became an elaborate text by which, if it was meticulously studied well enough, someone could attain righteousness through the keeping of it. That's two different functions. The law can't be both. The law cannot exist to show people their sinfulness and their need for atonement and at the same time exist to show people how they can go about accomplishing self-righteousness. If you need atonement, you're acknowledging, I can't accomplish self-righteousness. If you're self-righteous, you don't need atonement. Do you understand? Now, the rabbis and the Pharisees in Judaism had turned this into an elaborate thing so that people when they wanted instruction and when they wanted clarification for the extraneous things that they were about in their life, would flood to the rabbis and would flood to the experts of the law, as Jesus calls them, the lawyers, the Pharisees, because they would get then instruction for every little element where they needed clarity so that they could proceed righteously, and they developed these elaborate schemes. For instance, you could lie to someone unless you swore upon the altar of God, and then you couldn't lie to someone. I mean, all these, you could divorce your wife unless, you know, under these grounds, these grounds, and these grounds. One rabbi, if she burnt your dinner, you could divorce her. But you, you know, and, and it's just this huge, you know, chaos of, of instruction and morality that does not come from the Bible, but which they had used it as a way to elevate themselves. Because, man, if you think heaven and hell depend on you being righteous before God, and your righteousness before God depends on your ability to not break these laws, you're going to need some legal counsel, aren't you? So what these pastors in Ephesus seem to have done is where they started from a place of true gospel, salvation in Jesus Christ alone, sound doctrine. Perhaps they realized at some point that there was a lot more notoriety and, and, frankly, money to be made if 
they elevated themselves as experts of these legal things and their own little gatekeepers, this time of the Christian community instead of the Jewish community. Well, let me show you what I mean. Turn to over to chapter 6. We'll just read this now. Look at verse 3. We'll just read verses 3 through 5. Look at this. If anyone teaches otherwise, now you might notice if you look up at verse 2, how verse 2 ends, because this says if anyone teaches otherwise. What do you mean if anyone teaches otherwise? Verse 2 ends, teach and exhort these things. So this, this is on the heels of about two or three chapters of just sound doctrine, gospel teaching. And then we get to this verse, verse 3. This is the charge now that he's not supposed to let people teach what's coming. If anyone teaches otherwise, different from these things, and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspensions, and useless wranglings of men, men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, I don't think that, that it's a shocker to all of you that a pastor takes his salary, takes his living from the people whom he pastors, right? I mean, that a pastor, in whatever he takes from the church, depends upon the people in the church, right? It's a, it's a pretty simple scenario. He is being paid from the church based on the people in the pews, Right? That's what he's getting from the church. Now, he may work with his hands as I do or as Paul did or somebody else, but if he wants to be paid well from the ministry, he needs people in the pews, right? And it turns out that teaching the gospel and sound doctrine is not always the most effective way to get people in the pews. Did you know that? And so there were some people, evidently, who had been made pastors, who started off well, and then looked around and was like, huh, I'm beginning to grasp the mathematical concepts behind my ministry here. If I am going to have more gain, I need more people here. And if I am going to have more people here, the teaching that Paul said I was supposed to be teaching is not working so well. And so what if, again, let me turn there, chapter 6, verse 3, what if we start to teach things other than simply wholesome words that accord with sound doctrine? What if, rather than focus on the simple, what if we start to make Doctrine which accords with godliness. What if we start to make this about me and my ministry and my expertise in these matters? What if we can really get some discussion going? What if we can really get some debate going? What if we can really get some back and forth on these things? And then people will come because they're engaged and we're talking about things they've never heard of before. And things that we can't get from Jesus a simple yes or no concerning. We'll really stir things up. 
Sure, there might be some envy, there might be some strife, there might be some suspicions back and forth. But as we wrangle all these things out, it might be that this godliness will lead to gain. And that was their approach. Now, they simply followed the model of their day. And the model of their day is, have some religious expert high on a pedestal who knew things that everyone else didn't know, and it makes sense. If you want to get this stuff from this religious expert, then you're going to have to adhere to his teaching and become one of his disciples, and you're going to have to flock to him. Make sense? That's what, the, that's what this was about. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians telling the, the church in, in, in Corinth, you shouldn't be saying, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. Paul and Apollos weren't even trying to get the people to take different sides. They were just doing that on their own. I'm a disciple of this guy. And these guys were capitalizing on it. Now that was the model of their day. That's not the model of our day. Not for the most part. Instead, we have people filling churches with all sorts of different models because the simple sound instruction of God's word is not enough for their gain. And, uh, for instance, there are people with cottage industries on how to be a better person. And their entire presentation, their entire invitation is about come to our church and listen to our teaching and connect with our people and you can be a better father. Or you can be a better husband. Or you can be a better friend. You can be a better member of the community if you'll come to our community church and plug into what we're doing. You can be a better citizen. It's kind of implied behind it. You know, a good person who goes to church and who learns how to do good things. And that's their message. And you come and you listen to their, their sermons for whatever extent they exist. And it's little verses ripped from different passages of the Bible with moral instruction. And they're telling all these people you need to adhere to these moral instructions because this is what God wants us to do, to adhere to these moral instructions. And there's always a smile and what's left out is a lot of sin and conviction, and a call to repentance, and a call to self-sacrifice, and a call to take these things seriously, and a fluid, foundational instruction of the fullness of God's Word. Because that doesn't put people in the seat. And they're going to fall asleep like some of you are tempted to do right now if you just stand up and try to teach the Bible. That's not going to captivate them. But if you spin everything into how you can be better here, and how you can be better here, and how you can be better here, then you might be able to get some people who are desperate to improve. It's self-improvement. And a, a close sister of that is financial improvement and prosperity. You know, their whole spiel, their whole stick, come to our church. We'll show you how to receive the blessings of God. And you won't be sick. And you won't be poor. And God can give you all your dreams. And they're not teaching anything from the Bible. They're just pulling random verses from the Bible out of context to try to support that idea. But they're teaching and they're talking for long periods of time. And boy, their hands stay in the truth plain the whole time. They're really good at presenting. They've got a slick presentation. They're good and they are dressed to the nines. They don't look like me. I'm scruffy looking. You know, they, they don't look like me. You know, I, wouldn't, I don't pass the test. And they wear the signs of wealth, and they drive the signs of wealth, and they live in the signs of wealth, because that's their spiel. And it works. People show up. And godliness, their version of it, becomes a means of gains. A mean of gain. 
And then there are other people who, they don't teach anything at all, let alone sound doctrine. They don't worry about sound doctrine. They don't worry about doctrine, period. You come and it's all a big presentation, a big show, because people will show up for a story concert, and people will show up for a skit, and people will show up for story time, and people will show up for a comedian who just makes people laugh from the pulpit. People will show up for happy tales and, and testimonies over and over and over again. And that's what they're trying to do. They are trying to get people to show up. Why? Because that's how you gain. It's a simple mathematical <laughs> equation. If nobody shows up, you don't get anything. Nobody wants to have a career where they don't get anything. Do they? Nobody wants to invest themselves into something where they don't get anything, do they? That sounds like a big sacrifice, doesn't it? It sounds like, like this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandment is love. What is love? In this God demonstrated His love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That sounds like sacrifice, right? The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, honest intentions, pure intentions, from a good conscience, not a guilt-ridden conscience. A conscience that can teach and serve and sacrifice knowing I'm, I'm doing the very best that I can here. And from sincere faith, I truly believe this. My life is this. It's not just words. I'm not pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. I truly believe this. The purpose of the command the purpose of the charge to teach no other doctrine is love. That's why a pastor is supposed to serve. That's why you're supposed to serve. Love, sacrifice, not employment. Not employment. Not gain. Not money. Not prosperity. The purpose of this command, Timothy that you stay there and charge these people to teach no other doctrine, is that Christian ministry, Christian oversight. In fact, in verse 4, in the New King James, it says godly edification. In the ESV, it says something like oversight or management, something like that. The word edification is oversight, management. Management of God's things. The purpose of that is love from the right motivations. It's not to make you wealthy or to give you a good career. From which some have strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither the things that they say nor what they affirm. They have no idea what they're talking about. That's how I feel about the fool who stands up and says, if you have enough faith, you won't get sick and die. What are you going to tell the person at the funeral? That is a person who does not understand the things which they affirm. If they do, they're not operating from any form of sincerity. It's certainly not love.
the person who stands up and tells people that if they just have enough faith and trust, God will give them their vacation home and their retirement savings and all their debt will go away and because God is with them, they will prosper. What do you tell the Christian who's run out of his home, whose possessions are possessed by another? What do you tell the persecuted one? This is your fault. You don't have enough faith. This is God's judgment. You should have done better. Verse 8. Now here is the correction. Okay. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now I assume all of you here want to use the law of God lawfully. So here it is. Knowing this, that the law is made to help a person, righteous person. That's the correction to the Pharisees. The law is not made to help a person be self-righteous. But for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and sinners. Guess what? That's us. For the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, fornicators, sodomites or homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, that was every one of us guilty before God, apart from Jesus Christ. That's what the law is meant to be used to do. Not to make us righteous, but to show us sin. If there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Now, this is what the law was meant to do. And I'm telling you, you try to tell someone about Jesus Christ and sound doctrine and the the glorious gospel of the blessed God that's been committed to your trust. You try to tell them about that without telling them that they are ungodly sinners, unholy, profane, murderers of fathers and mothers, manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and every other profane thing contrary to sound doctrine, then you are not using the law of God as it was meant to be used. Some of us in our desire to see people rescued from the destruction of sin in their lives, only talk about sin in the sense of if they'll keep the commands, then everything will be better for them. That is not how the law was meant to be used. The law of God does not exist to make the world a little better or to make sinners' lives a little better. That was not how it's meant to be used. The law of God is meant to show sinners they are condemned before God and destined for eternal hell. And only in that light will the glorious gospel of the blessed God make any sense. Now I know, I know it is hard to tell people that sinners stand condemned before God and will spend eternity in hell apart from Jesus Christ. I know that will offend people. I know that will be uncomfortable. And I know that no gospel presentation is complete or even a gospel presentation without it. It will not put people in the seats. But it will confront people with the truth of their situation before God. 
So that's how the law is supposed to be used. That's how we have to share the gospel. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you are not only in trouble with your life, you stand eternally condemned before God. The law of God condemns you. You will spend eternity in hell. Now, you expect Paul to launch from there straight into the gospel, right? But that's not what he does. Look at verse 12. The gospel's coming in verse 15. Look at where he goes right after that. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. There's a lot there. Let me unpack it in verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful. Not because Paul demonstrated himself to be an upright citizen. God chose Paul, putting me into the ministry. Paul didn't go out manipulating it for himself. God chose Paul. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, I was a blasphemer, someone who claimed that all of the things that are true about God are lies. I said lies about God. I was a persecutor. I attacked God's people. I ran them out of their homes. Yesterday, my third daughter finally won a battle of wills uh, with me. Uh, she, she won me over and got me to watch the second half of Fiddler on the Roof. My father lost that battle of wills for many, many, many years, but he won Jocelyn, and Jocelyn finally won me, and I watched the second half, and I realized, not to spoil it for you, the movie's been out since, can you take the spoiler off if it's been out since 1971 or whatever it is? And, and I realized that the movie was about the Jewish people being expelled from Russia uh, because of their faith in God. That was Paul. Paul was the Russians in the movie, evicting them and running them out because they were corrupting influences on the true citizens. That was him. That's what he did. He threw people out of their homes and ran them out of their livelihoods and forced them to abandon their possessions. That's, that was him. He dragged them before courts to have them thrown into jail to try to make examples of some of them. He lied about God. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent man. There was no reasoning with him on these things. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, what does that mean, ignorantly in unbelief? Ignorantly does not mean, cannot mean, that he did not know about Jesus. Because, in fact, he did. That's why he was doing this in the first place. He knew about Jesus. He was not ignorant. He was a scholar. He knew probably more about the scriptures than I ever will. He was not an ignorant man. But he was ignorant in unbelief. He was ignorant as to the truth of Jesus Christ because he refused to believe in him. And he obtained mercy. Unlike these men who had been excommunicated, he was doing it in sincerity of heart, but his sincerity of heart was unbelief. 
He had not recognized Jesus as the Messiah. He had not believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, he was against God, but he was against God in sincerity of unbelief, which is not okay. But that is different from what these men are doing who seeing the revelation of Jesus Christ in the church and experiencing the gospel in their own lives and seeing the impact of the gospel in the lives of Christians around them have apostated themselves and gone off to make great names for themselves for the sake of gain. No, he was ignorant and a fool in unbelief. Verse 14, how do you get out of that state? And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. When you share the gospel with someone, you are sharing the gospel with someone who's heard about Jesus, their own sin. You are sharing the gospel with someone who does, who's insolent. They can't be reasoned with. They don't want to be talked about about their own sin. So was Paul. You are sharing the gospel with someone who is in a condition of unbelief. Unbelief is a status of the human soul. It's a great toggle switch, if you will. Whereas so long as it remains off, they are ignorant of all the things of God that require spiritual life to wrap your mind around and to understand and to partake in. And you are speaking truth to people, this glorious gospel of the blessed God, praying with all your heart in faith that God will toggle the switch on. As Paul says in verse 14, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. How so? He turned on belief. He changed the condition of my soul. And I was no longer ignorant. Your presentation of the gospel to someone in unbelief is not an effort for you to turn on the condition of their soul, for you to make them spiritually alive. You are to hammer away at the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes sin, which includes damnation, and which includes salvation, praying that God with faith and love, will turn on the condition of unbelief to belief. And that eyes will see. And if you are truly a Christian, you have experienced that yourself. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, you might ask, why? Because the reality is, none of us are born righteous. We may hear all sorts of things about God without trusting God in belief and having that ignorance transformed under the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're praying for a miracle that you can't perform. You can't perform any miracles. And if you don't share the gospel because you don't think you're going to get the words right or you think you're going to offend somebody, that's not faith, friend, brother, sister. You got to trust God more than that. You didn't save yourself. You weren't one to the faith because somebody reasoned away all of your doubts. This is a toggle of the soul. Whereby someone goes from being spiritually dead to alive. Now here's the gospel. Verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You have been given a great story if you're a Christian. Do you realize that? If you are a Christian, you have been given a great story. This was Paul's story. It's his testimony. He used his testimony all the time. In his letters, in the gospel. As we'll see, he counts his testimony as a great gift from God. It's okay to talk about yourself. 
when you share the gospel. I strongly encourage it. The law condemns the guilty. Jesus saves the guilty. You see the difference? The law condemns the sinner. And all those things about sin and eternal hell, they just hit like an anvil. Jesus saves the sinner. And this is, this is the message. Verse 16. For this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In other words, God chose Paul so that you and I can say, what are you, a blasphemer, a sinner, an evil? God save the Apostle Paul. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That will be our introduction next week. I will stop with one exhortation to you. Okay? Pastors and God's people cannot leave people alone in their sin. You cannot do it. When you see people in sin, you cannot leave them alone in it. You have to speak to sin and the gospel. Let's close with the word of prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the patience of your people and the way they have listened and hung on. And I pray, Father, we've been encouraged and we understand a bit about the ministry that we're partaking in. Father, I hope that we all have a little bit more courage and that we'll be a little bit braver and act in a little bit more faith and talk a little bit more about ourselves so that people can understand that when we speak to them about sin, we speak to them as sinners. We speak to them about salvation. We speak as those who are saved. Help us to do well and to be faithful to this, to not be overcome with the temptation to consider numbers and to count people, but to be faithful in our ministry. And Father, we ask that you'll bless us in it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.